Well, good evening, church. It's a pleasure to be with you all again. I look forward to opening up the Word of God with you all. It's a supreme privilege, as several of in the room know. I count myself unworthy to be in that group, but I trust that the Lord will lead with His Spirit, and um, we have an exciting text to look at. So before we begin, go ahead and be opening to Numbers chapter 24. We'll read verses 10 through 25, but let's go to the Lord in prayer before we get into it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this, another opportunity to gather as a body of believers this evening, to study your word, to see with fresh eyes the truths that you have given us and preserved for us here. We thank you that in your word we might learn more of you, of your character, and of your promises that you have for us. Lord, I pray that you would be with me as I seek to present your word accurately and faithfully. I pray that you would be with the people here tonight as they listen and seek to understand your word. In spite of me, Lord, I pray that they would realize the truth that you have here for us. May it help us to not only learn more about you for the sake of head knowledge in such a way that would produce pride within us, but rather that as we discussed even this morning, that we would learn your ways and how to walk in them. We recognize that it is your word as we studied this morning that teaches us, and we pray that your spirit uses this work to make us holy for your glory. We ask this in Jesus' name, amen. So before we look at our text this evening, I want to bring us up to speed. It's been several weeks since we last opened up numbers together in the evening, and so let's do a quick review. Tonight we're going to see the fourth and final oracle, if you can count it as such. There are really four oracles that we'll examine tonight, one uh, larger portion and then three smaller ones, um, from our pagan diviner, Balaam. But last time we met, Christian shared with us the third oracle from Balaam, or rather, the second, with which was yet another pronouncement of blessing upon Israel, much to the chagrin of Balak, the king of Moab. You'll remember that Balak had hired Balaam as a um, spiritual hitman of sorts, this um, diviner assassin that was uh, intended to curse Israel on, on the behalf of the Moabites. He, uh, Balaam had a reputation for being able to coerce any false deities, uh, pagan idols, into serving the purposes of him, uh, of whoever had hired him. And so, when Israel was approaching Moab, they, though they presented no immediate threat to the Moabites, Balak, the king, was worried and threatened by the size of Israel. And so, Balaam attempted to sway Yahweh into cursing his own people. Yet, instead of, instead, uh, God used Balaam as a mouthpiece to pronounce blessings upon his people three times. Now we're going to see what follows. So let's go ahead and read Numbers chapter 24. It is several verses tonight, but the way that I've structured, I think it will be appropriate to go ahead and read them all together, seeing as it's one oracle here. Beginning in verse 10, where Christian left off before, let's read 10 to 25 now. And Balak's anger was kindled against Balaam, and he struck his hands together. And Balak said to Balaam, 
I called you to curse my enemies, and behold, you have blessed them these three times. Therefore now flee to your own place. I said, I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. And Balaam said to Balak, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me? If Balak should give me his house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will. What the Lord speaks, that I will speak. And now behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And he took up his discourse and said, The oracle of Balaam, the son of Beor, the oracle of the man whose eye is opened, the oracle of him who hears the words of God and knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty falling down with his eyes uncovered. I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also his enemies shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. Then he looked on Amalek and took up his discourse and said, Amalek was the first among the nations, but its end is utter destruction. And he looked on the Kenite and took up his discourse and said, Enduring is your dwelling place, and your nest is set in the rock. Nevertheless, Cain shall be burned when Ashur takes you away captive. And he took up his discourse and said, Alas, who shall live when God does this? But ships shall come from Ketim, and shall afflict Ashur and Eber, and he too shall come to utter destruction. Then Balaam rose and went back to his place. And Balak also went his way. And so, we see there in those verses um, several things, but we'll start with verses 10 through 14, which are the the precursor, the dialogue that takes place between Balaam and Balak in relation to the previous three oracles rather than this fourth, uh, fifth, sixth, and seventh that we looked at just a second ago. So we see here that after suffering through these three consecutive blessings of Israel Balaam, uh, from Balaam, Balak, rather, um, is beside himself. He's had enough. And so it says in verse 10 that he struck his hands together. And this is not some sort of d- spirit of Dallas Goble coming over him that makes him a hyper-animated speaker. Uh, but rather, instead, it's an ancient sign of frustration that expresses a, a extreme anger, right? And so when he struck his hands together, it communicated to Balaam that um, his time was running out. His, uh, Balaam's, Balak, rather, was about to fly off the handle. Uh, he was spitting mad, as we might say. As I was considering this image, I like to think when I'm reading these, especially the Old Testament, I like to picture the scene and the setting, and I do so imperfectly, but I try to picture what these people might have looked like and consider what it might look like in a modern context. And so I was thinking about that striking of the hands in anger, and I was thinking, you know, I don't think that's around today. Uh, I don't don't think we do that anymore. Um, Until last Sunday when I was uh, considering these verses 
and we were playing Bethany in the church wiffle ball game, which we secured the dub, of course. But in the midst of that, I at one point was up to bat, and I swung and popped a ball straight up to Hunter, who was pitching at the time. And as I was making my way down to first base, just so I could turn around to our dugout of sorts, I smacked my hands together in frustration. And I was like, oh, okay, yeah, so this is still around. I knew exactly in that moment what Balak felt like, right? <laughs> exactly, perfectly. The, the situations are almost identical. Uh, no, of course not. Um, but what Balaam did, or what Balak did, excuse me, uh, toward Balaam was an act of extreme anger. It communicated uh, his intense frustration. And why was that? Why was Balak so angry? It's because, as we see also in verse 10, that though he had hired this spiritual hitman, Balaam, to curse Israel, he had rather had to sit, been forced to sit idly by while Balaam pronounced these three blessings upon the nation. So after he had struck his hands together, we see that evidently Balaam had in his contract some sort of a Morgan and Morgan clause, if you will, because of what goes on in verse 11. In verse 11 it says, uh, I said I will certainly honor you, but the Lord has held you back from honor. So to translate into modern day, you don't pay unless we win. And um, certainly the Moabites lost in this as they had to sit by and watch Israel be cur uh, blessed. rather. And so Balaam is communicated here. Uh, Balaam is communicating back and forth with this very frustrated boss who is telling him now to hit the road. I'm not paying you. Nice try. And so the labor apparently is not worth his wages, according to the Moabite king. It shows a great deal of ignorance on the part of Balak here, doesn't it? Here he had the idea that someone could convince the true sovereign to, con to curse his own people, and then he got upset when that didn't work out in his favor. Balaam's reputation was that he could convince any deity to bend their wills to the wills of humans. And that may have worked in previous um, jobs for Balaam when he'd been hired by other nations for similar uh, purposes. See, it's quite easy to convince a god to agree with you, to agree with a human's will, when the god in question has been made by humans. The pagan nations in the region were uh, conjuring up carved idols with characteristics like their own. The false gods that they worshipped could, could only act according to the wills of man because they were the creations of men. But not this time. In this instance, Balaam has been tasked with asking the God of Israel, the only true and living God, to go back on his own promises to break the covenant he had made with Abraham and to curse his own people. Not only would that be a hard sell, but it would be quite literally impossible. God then would cease to be God. That is what Balaam had been hired to do. He had been hired by Balak to get God to stop being God. And so we see the futility in that exercise, don't we? He was supposed to instead become like all the idols God was uh, and bend to the will of wicked man. Balaam, of course, fails because God is still God and God cannot change. And he, Balak th uh, thus banishes him without pay. And of course, that's upsetting to Balaam. 
Number one, because he's not getting paid for his time and efforts. And number two, because he's now going away with a blemish on his record, which may inhibit the chances of him being hired in the future. So he says, in response to Balak here in verses 12 to 14, Did I not tell your messengers whom you sent to me, if Balak should give me his whole house full of silver and gold, I would not be able to go beyond the word of the Lord to do either good or bad of my own will? What the Lord speaks, that will I speak? In other words, he's saying, listen, boss, I told you that disclaimer up front, uh, even though it wasn't exactly quite as honest as he's put it here in the earlier chapters. Uh, he was a little, little less upfront then, but regardless, he's trying to say that his hands are clean of the results. He did what he was hired to do. He, he gave it his best shot, um, but he was only able to prophesy that which the divine had given him to speak. And so they agreed to disagree, and they're going to go their separate ways. But not before Balaam has one more word for Balak and the Moabites. He says in verse 14, And now, behold, I am going to my people. Come, I will let you know what this people will do to your people in the latter days. And I want to make this abundantly clear to you all. This is not a warning to Balak and the Moabites in the sense that God has warned other nations or other, uh, even Israel in the past and throughout the Old Testament that if they should turn, then they might be spared, then God might have mercy on them. This is just a declaration of something as though it has already happened. This is as sure as, the, as anything else, uh, as any other promise of God, except that this promise is one of destruction rather than one of blessing. God has is declaring, he is announcing the judgment that will come upon Moab here. And why is he going to punish them? Why will their end be destruction? Because they are enemies of God. We just read, well, Christian, uh, rather, the last time we met, read in verse 9, again, blessed are those who bless you, and cursed are those who curse you. And so, Israel... Any, any, anyone who tries to curse Israel, they themselves will be cursed. And so we see here that God is true to his word. Again, whether it be promises of blessing, like the three oracles that preceded this one for uh, his people, or promises of judgment, like, Mo, uh, like that of the ones here for Moab and any other nation that stands in opposition to the people of God. So now we see in verses 15 and following the fourth oracle from Balaam. Before he leaves with his head hung low, the Lord is going to use him to pronounce a curse upon Moab and other enemy nations. Again, it's not a, simply a promise of, of a prophecy of cursing. It's a promise uh, of what is to come. But also, there is a messianic element here. Um, we'll look at this more fully in a moment. But I hope that that language uh, rang some bells to you. Um, you, you really can't miss it. Um, and so I don't want to get ahead of myself, uh, though. So let's first look at how God is announcing the coming destruction of Moab, the sons of Sheth, Edom, and Seir. He is simultaneously, while doing that, announcing that there is one even more powerful that will come. And so let's take these in turn, beginning first with, uh, with the first person, chronologically speaking. I'll start by reading verses 17 to 19 again. 
I see him, but not now. I behold him, but not near. A star shall come out of Jacob, and a scepter shall rise out of Israel. It shall crush the forehead of Moab and break down all the sons of Sheth. Edom shall be dispossessed. Seir also, his enemies, shall be dispossessed. Israel is doing valiantly. And one from Jacob shall exercise dominion and destroy the survivors of cities. So let's first start with these Davidic fulfillments, as you might have been uh, looking ahead to. Balaam is telling of an event that is not now and not near. He is looking far into the future. And what does he see? He sees a star that shall come out of Jacob, or Israel, and a scepter that shall rise from Israel as well. Now I hope that your typological alarms are ringing here. You might be thinking to yourself something along the lines of, hey, that hymn that was mentioned just a moment ago sounds kind of familiar now. And, and even um, it alludes back to the king that is um, mentioned in the previous oracle in verse 7. But it's much more than that here. Perhaps you've started singing, O Beautiful Star of Bethlehem, to yourself. If so, you're on the right track. But bear with me, we're not going to jump straight into the Gospels. We're first going to look at another stop on our journey through God's progressive revelation. Just as we had the first Adam and then the true and better Adam, we also have David and then David's son. We've been studying these themes in our walk through the Psalms on Sunday morning, you'll be familiar with. We see how the Psalms of David find their fulfillment in him, but ultimately they find their fulfillment in Christ as well. The same could be said of this prophetic judgment in Numbers 24. Balaam here uses two images to represent the one that he sees in this oracle. First, he sees a star. This astrological image is one that he, as a pagan diviner, would have been very familiar with. Um, In fact, we can see this also in Isaiah 14, 12. You don't need to turn there, but it's referring to a king. In that uh, that verse out of Isaiah, the king of Babylon is called Daystar. And additionally, we see Jesus himself called the offspring of David the bright morning star in Revelation 22, 16. To further solidify this point, Balaam then calls this figure a scepter, which is a ubiquitous royal insignia. So then, who is this Israelite king that shall defeat Moab and others? Well, first of all, it is speaking in some sense to King David. For roughly 300 years after Balaam's oracle, David experiences triumph over Moab and Edom as detailed in 2 Samuel and 1 Kings. Again, you don't need to turn here, but I will read some excerpts here. 2 Samuel 2 reads, And he, meaning David, defeated Moab, and he measured them with the line, making them lie down on the ground. Two lines he measured to be put to death, and one full line to be spared. And the Moabites became servants to David and brought tribute. Then Edom gets a taste in verses 13 and 14 of that same chapter where it reads, And David made a name for himself when he returned from striking down 18,000 Edomites in the Valley of Saul. Then he put garrisons in Edom. Throughout all Edom he put garrisons, and all the Edomites became David's servants. And the Lord gave victory to David wherever he went. And then also in 1 Kings 
chapter 11, verses 15 and 16, it reads, For when David was in Edom, and Joab the commander of the army went up to bury the slain, he struck down every male in Edom. For Joab and all Israel remained there six months until he had cut off every male in Edom. So David certainly had a part in this fulfillment of Balaam's fourth oracle. However, the true prophets of Israel were not satisfied with this. They foresaw an ultimate fulfillment of the judgment that would be dealt to Moab, Edom, and all other enemies of God. They prophesied throughout Isaiah and Ezekiel, Amos, Zephaniah, Jeremiah, and others of the same destruction. And so David couldn't be the ultimate end to this prophecy, and they realized that. We also need to realize it. Which leads us to the one that would ultimately fulfill it. Not David, but rather David's son. In this fourth oracle of Balaam, the, the pagan diviner, this unbelieving seer, he gives a prophecy of the Messiah who is to come. It's a tremendous reminder to us that God will use any means that he chooses to execute his plans and to declare them to us. Not only does he use the great heroes of the faith like Paul and Abraham and Moses, Jacob and others to, to communicate through his word to us, but he even, as illustrated here, will use those that are opposed to him. Those that are seeking to manipulate him, he will use them as a mouthpiece to pronounce blessings upon his people. We need not forget that his thoughts are not our thoughts and his ways are not our ways. That is why we must, uh, even as discussed this morning, seek God's face and learn through His Word. Learn His ways through His Word. That is the only way that we can walk according to them. And so, what is this messianic prophecy that Balaam proclaims here? It is one that stretches well beyond him as he looks be, uh, into the future, but it also calls back this language that we see in verse 17 is something that calls back to the first gospel in Genesis 3.15. The language in verse 17 is familiar for a reason. I hope that was uh, clear to you as we read it through. Balaam foresees the king of Israel. And he's seeing in the king of Israel the one that will not only crush the head of Moab, but also the one who will crush the head of the serpent, which is a representative of all the enemies of God, Satan himself. The serpent's head shall be crushed, which is a pronouncement of cursing for the serpent, but also a pronouncement of supreme hope for God's people. When we unite ourselves to Christ, when we unite ourselves to the king of this world, of, of, of the world that is to come, of Christ himself, who will establish his kingdom forever, we also establish ourselves as enemies with those who are enemies of God. When we unite ourselves in, under His kingship, we too take up our arms against the prince of the power of the air. And so we see this also as a hope, hopeful message for those that are united to Christ. Balaam, as we saw in the earlier oracles, is looking out over the camp of God's people. And that shape of the camp resembles a cross. And now, as he looks into the future, he sees the star of Jacob, the scepter that shall rise out of Israel, and he pro prophesies of the one who will bear the cross 
for the sake of God's people. Now, remember, relating back to the idea of the scepter here, Jacob's blessing upon Judah declares that the scepter would not depart from Judah's, Judah, blah, 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 Judah's lineage in Genesis 49. And this culminates in Christ's resurrection, just as the promise of the crushed serpent is solidified in Jesus defeating death in that same instance. Moab, Edom, and all the other pagan and enemy nations of God will be dispossessed. They will be subject to the rule of our great king. Though this oracle was merely a declaration of things to come for Moab, do not think that it must be so for you. If you are outside the kingdom of Christ, then you are an enemy of God. This is, unlike what it was for Moab, a warning for you. It is not too late for you as it was for Moab. Subject yourself to the king whose rule will never end or be crushed to death like all of his enemies. It is not too late for you like it was for them. God is patient and merciful, but he will not tarry forever. The scepter of Israel will execute justice and judgment in his perfect timing. And if you are wise, you will turn and repent now before it is too late. In a supreme display of grace, the same one who will judge and wipe out all evil in the coming day is the one who is now beckoning you to come. It is not too late to submit your life to the king. If you do not, though, then your end will be like that of Moab. You will be crushed and forgotten. You will see no end to the torment that is due you. The wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord, as Paul reminds us in Romans. And amen to that. He is Lord indeed, and His ruling scepter shall never depart. Repent and believe in Him. Now we could stop here, but that's not where our chapter ends. And so let's quickly look at Hmm, what's this? Looks like we've got three other oracles in addition to this, this quote-unquote final one as your um, subhead, subhead in your Bibles may say. Um, so yes and no, there are three more oracles, uh, certainly, although brief. We recognize these to be three additional oracles due to the refrain he took up his discourse and said, which is the same way which all of his previous oracles had begun. And so what's going on here? Balaam is concluding with words of judgment for other enemies of Israel, just as he began in the third oracle. Something to note also is that this successive set of prophetic pronouncements of judgment on the enemy nations begins here. This is the first time we see this grouping of, of judgments like this but it's something that we'll see in the true prophets uh, in um, books to come, like Amos and Isaiah and so on. So let's touch on these briefly. We'll begin in verse, tw uh, verse 20 with Amalek, who perceived themselves to be the preeminent of all the nations. What we find, though, is that their worldly pride and power can do nothing to thwart God's judgment. Like Moab, their end is utter destruction. This is not the first time, as you'll recall, that we've seen the Amalekites in numbers, though. If you recall, they had partnered with the Canaanites to, to defeat Israel earlier in Numbers 14 when they first tried to enter the Promised Land. Later, though, they would find themselves, as uh, prophecy is fulfilled, 
uh, being defeated by Saul and then by David and even later Hezekiah. In verse 21, we see the Kenites uh, taking refuge in their geographical positioning, which would also prove ineffective against the Lord's plans. Their faith was in vain, as is the faith of anyone who trusts in something other than the Lord. And finally, verse 23 addresses other nearby pagan nations that are to be destroyed as Israel's enemies. I don't have much to say about the nations mentioned here apart from the fact that they will also see destruction for the same reason that they are enemies of God's people and by extension enemies of God. This is again the ultimate end of anyone who opposes God. His promises are sure and do not miss that point. I do want to quickly comment though on the exclamation of Balaam here to end verse 23. In the midst of his final oracle he asks this rhetorical question. Alas, who shall live when God does this? When, when God executes the judgment upon all these nations surrounding him, who shall live? And admittedly, I could not find any commentary to support um, the, what was called to my mind in this phrasing, but I, I do think it applies here, uh, but, but maybe take it uh, a little cautiously. So, so the, the question that Balaam asks reminded me of Psalm 15, where David asks the Lord, who shall dwell on your holy hill? And so to, I'll be brief here. Again, there was not support like there was looking back to Genesis uh, in the earlier verses. Uh, but I, all I want to say is that the answer would be the same in both, both cases. Who shall dwell on your holy hill and who shall live when God does this, when God executes this judgment on the nations? In both cases, the only ones that shall live will be those that are for God, those that are united to Christ, His allies, His people, His servants. Again, if you aim to avoid this judgment, then you must unite yourself to the one who has paid the penalty for us already. Our substitute is Christ Jesus and Him alone. No might, no strategy, no earthly refuge will save you on the day of judgment. God alone will judge, and it is God alone that can save. Submit your lives to Him now, or be subject to the judgment to come. On the other hand, we are also reminded in both cases that there's a positive description of the one who lives, the one who can sustain and survive the judgment. And that one is the one who walks blamelessly and does what is right, to, bar to borrow again from Psalm 15. And just to remind you again from what I opened with, that um, this is similar to what we just read this morning. How can we walk blamelessly? Who is it that does right? It is the one that knows the Word of God. We cannot serve the Lord apart from knowing Him and knowing His Word knowing His commandments, and obeying them faithfully. And so then the chapter finishes with Balaam going on his way. And so we'll, we'll do the same here briefly. But in parting, I want to remind you of the major themes that we saw in these verses. Again, God will use whatever means He chooses to see His will be accomplished. 1 Corinthians 1, 26-31 reads, For consider your calling, brothers, 
Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. And because of Him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boasts in the Lord. So, for those that God has distributed His mercy upon, we need not fear. We are to be encouraged by this messianic oracle. The same enemies of Israel, the same enemies of God, are the enemies of us as His people. And He will see to it at the end that the star and the scepter shall return in glory and execute judgment. Let us boast in the Lord. Let us not be foolish like the Amalekites or the Kenites and boast in our own strength or might or power or earthly wisdom, but rather surrender all to Christ and be made strong in Him. Let's go ahead and pray. Heavenly Father, we long to see the day, the day when Christ shall come and destroy once and for all, all of our enemies, all of your enemies, those that oppose you and your holiness, your holy statutes. We long to see you glorified and magnified. We too were at enmity with you, but you've been gracious and merciful in saving us. Father, may this truth compel us to praise you and to obey you. Give us hearts that desire you more, love you more, and seek even more to walk in your ways. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.